Welcome back to the most accurate podcast here at 4 for 4 Football. As always, I'm your host, John Daigle. Joined today, the man himself, friend in life, it is John Paulson. Paulson, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm going to be gone for the next two weeks, trip to Europe. So kind of getting my ducks in a row here uh, for that trip. But uh, happy to be here to talk about a couple of underappreciated facets of fantasy football, the offensive line and defense. The shows will go on, for better or worse, without you, but we will get to those guests in the ensuing weeks. Right now, I actually want to start off with a bit of OTA news before we dive into your recent pieces on 44.com. And I think that begins with DeAndre Hopkins outright being released by the Cardinals. And I want to start with the Cardinals section of this, because Kyler Murray We didn't even get to see him on the field with both players. Only 30 pass attempts, 7.5% of his pass attempts last year came with both Marquise Brown and Hopkins on the field. Yes, what I've seen from everyone so far is discussing Marquise Brown's fantasy points. Uh, As the wide receiver six through week six without Hopkins last year. But also, Paulson... I struggle to make that connection. I don't want to extrapolate those splits because all those games came with Kyler Murray, whereas we are thinking we're getting Colt McCoy and or Clayton Toon for a majority, if not all of the season. So go ahead and discuss what you think will happen with this Cardinals offense now and Marquise Brown in particular. Yeah, I'm assuming uh, Kyler plays, I think, half the season. Uh, And I've seen some... Uh, doc, uh, doctor arguments, PT arguments on uh, Twitter with the, the guys in the white coats are battling it out, trying to figure out what his outlook what looks like. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have, we've got a lot of history of ACL tears for quarterbacks and they tend to come back, but he's a, it's kind of a special case because he's, you know, running such a big part of his game and uh, his athleticism is a big part of his game. So I'm interested to see where he ends up, but I'm starting to get a little bit more bullish on him appearing before midseason. So that being said, um, Colt McCoy is a decent backup. Uh, when this news broke about Hopkins being outright, outright released, it was surprising because he's pretty talented and they couldn't figure out a way to trade him uh, for anything. Uh, but my initial reaction is yes, Marquise Brown moves way up from maybe the mid forties uh, up to right now, I have him at 21 and half PPR. Um, Rondale Moore is going to get on the field. Uh, I think a little bit, a little bit more, uh, his, his floor is raised as well. Uh, and then you're kind of looking at guys like Greg Dortch, although Dortch is kind of, I think he's more of a, you know, more of a slot guy with more, uh, did better with more sidelines. So I'm interested to see, you know, in three receiver sets and in, in camp because they got Zach Pascal too. Uh, Michael Wilson, Auden Tate, Javon Wim. So we're getting into some some deep names there. So I do think that Marquise Brown gets is the biggest bump of this of this crew. Uh, you can maybe make an argument like a Trey McBride if if Zach Ertz is out, we'll we'll have a breakout season. But um, obviously, there's some quarterback issues there. Kyler Murray's status will drive this offense. Whether or not they can even remain competitive for the first half of the season if Kyler Murray is out and then why are they rushing Kyler Murray back if they're one and seven or something like that. So uh, it's going to be an interesting year in Arizona for for sure. Interesting is one way to put it. You mentioned that Marquise Brown is your wide receiver 21 on underdog. However, he's currently going as a wide receiver 35. So I think we need to play a name game now trying to figure out 
how much his ADP is going to adjust. So let's go ahead and start with that range you mentioned, wide receiver 21 to 25, right? The low end wide receiver twos. And let's say, would you draft Keenan Allen or Marquise Brown? Uh, Keenan Allen. I have him at 16. Drake London or Marquise Brown? Marquise Brown. But if this ADP is what it is, I know I can get Marquise Brown later. So there's right. no reason to reach for him. Um, if I think if I if I think I can get both London and Marquise Brown by just taking London first, that's a, that's a smart thing to do, knowing that his ADP is whatever you said, wide receiver 35. So right now, I think what you are getting at is we should probably be drafting him anywhere from 57 to 60 ADP around and in between Chris Godwin, Jackson Smith and Jigba and Brandon Ayuk, because that would still give us a full round in ranking ahead of where he's currently going. Yes. I, I think you're, I think he's vastly undervalued if he's going wide receiver 35 still. I mean, is this, is this the last two or three days of ADP? This is the last seven days of ADP. Okay. So we'll see where it lands in a couple days, but uh, right now that's just, uh, I think that's, vastly underrating his uh his value right now let's get to the other side of this deal and deandre hopkins who reportedly has his choices whittled down to buffalo and kansas city and by the sound of it the chiefs are offering more money so i'm just assuming that's where he's going to sign right now hopkins is going as the wide receiver 19 overall adp 39 right behind amari cooper and debo samuel just ahead of christian watson and i also think his adp hasn't set in because i'm guessing he becomes a top 30 pick with everyone assuming he lands with patrick mahomes right now for instance dk metcalf 29th adp overall calvin ridley 33 i can see hopkins settling into that zone so let's just assume hopkins were to sign with the chiefs where would you have him rank then that's an interesting uh, quandary between those two teams as to like which team would he have a better fantasy value with. And I was thinking initially, oh, it'll be the Chiefs because they don't really have uh, an entrenched wide receiver one, but they do have Travis Kelsey. And then you look at the and then you look at the Bills and they have an entrenched receiver one with Diggs. Uh, so you know which team would you rather have him join if you're looking to upside, you know, for his upside. And I guess I would say the Chiefs because, you know, there are wide receiver targets and there are tight end targets and there are some targets that overlap that could go to either player or either position. But, you know, there's some there's some routes that Kelsey doesn't run. So I think I'd rather have him go to the Chiefs and obviously one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time uh, in Patrick Mahomes. So where does he land? I think, you know, I had him in that uh, wide receiver 18 uh wide receiver 22 range i believe before the um before the release i think he probably would be in that 16 to 18 range there with keenan allen debo samuel terry mclaurin uh maybe a little bit higher uh to kind of see how he does and you know it was interesting to see you know the the report that the executives are kind of nfl executives are souring on his ability to separate yet you know, Matt Harmon at reception perception still had him solidly above average. The uh, open score, wide receiver open score over at ESPN Analytics had him solidly above average. So he's still able to get open. It's not like he's fallen off a cliff or anything. He was pretty productive last year when he was healthy. Does this do anything to Travis Kelsey's ADP for you? Right now, for example, my best ball tiers are on the site where I'm taking both a micro stance on players with the rankings, but more importantly, 
trying to explain big picture views of why I'm taking these players in their ranges. And so I'm not trying to poke holes in Travis Kelsey. Of course, I still value him as a top five, top six pick universally. But if we were to try to sell someone on backing off Kelsey, I do think it's actually an easy explanation in not only being 34 years old this season, but also last year, he was only the ninth tight end since 2008 many, many seasons to average over 15 points per game. Whereas the tight end two through 12 behind him, that was the first time that range averaged fewer than nine points per game since 2008. So think about if we had an outlier season at tight end one overall and also outlier seasons lower than that from tight end two through 12, and these points and players are suddenly going to meet in the middle with a little bit of regression, then maybe that tells us we should be waiting on tight end and instead valuing those lower end tight end ones that can maybe match him uh, or at least come closer because Travis Kelsey may not dominate the field. That's the way I'm looking at it anyways, but your thoughts on Travis Kelsey if Hopkins were to sign there? You know, I don't think it hurts him a whole lot, but it does affect him. I mean, you, I, th- I think Terry Kill at his, when he was last with the Chiefs, was more of a, of a fantasy factor, more of a real-world factor than Hopkins will be this year. Uh, they are hurting at receiver, I would say. Like, they're just, the rest of the receivers are the ones that are really going to take a, a push down. I mean, Kadarius Tony, uh, MBS, uh, Skymore, et cetera. But Kelsey, there are like these slight, slight warning signs heading into last season, but then his uh, red zone uh, activity increased and he had one of his best seasons ever. I still think that the, the advantage that he gives you at tight end, unless you are looking at perhaps Baltimore and saying a pass-heavy Ravens or a pass-heavier Ravens attack really could lead to a, a Mark Andrews uh, explosion or you're you know, looking at TJ Hawkinson at the end of the fourth round and loving those 8.5 targets that he averaged after coming over to Minnesota. If you are high on one or, or George Kittle. So if you're high on one of those guys and you're like, you know what, I'm going to pass on Kelsey in the middle of the first draft a receiver or running Bijan or somebody or Eckler and uh, target one of these tight ends later. I understand it because there is now a bigger disparity between in the ADPs between Kelsey and the field than there was, I think, last year. I think last year we were looking at a couple tight ends there in the second, Pitts in the third, you know. So the ADPs are starting to spread out as well, and that might create a market inefficiency in the TE2, TE, you know, through TE4 spots or TE5 spots uh, in the ADPs. Andrews currently being drafted as the tight end two, of course, did average the second most fantasy points per game among tight ends last year in his 11 starts with Lamar Jackson. Also, it is Andrews, to your point, not Kelsey, who has led all tight ends and end zone targets the last two years. Another bit of news we got out of nowhere this past week was Jimmy Garoppolo failing his physical after he reportedly underwent foot surgery Seems like a piece of news we shouldn't have missed out on that the team should have mentioned earlier, but underwent foot surgery when he signed with the Raiders back in May. And if you could count the red flags in this recent report, quote, the sense is that the team is confident he'll be ready to play by the start of the regular season, unquote. And I think, Paulson, that just gets us back to discussing Devontae Adams, currently going as the wide receiver eight and underdog as the very last pick in the first round, what are you doing now, given that we should maybe expect either 
Brian Hoyer or day three quarterback Aiden O'Connell to start week one? Yeah, this is uh, when this news broke. I uh, down we, we talked about Devontae, I think, on the podcast a, a week or two ago. And, you know, I, I think I had him at six and I moved him down to nine uh, at this point. Uh, and I moved to Josh Jacobs down as, as well. Uh, I am I'm a little worried now about this entire offense functioning and how functional it will be. Uh, with either a Gimpy Garoppolo, you know, he might be end up being healthy uh, and being, you know, being able to manage the games for the, for the Raiders, but certainly some red flags here. And I don't think Tom Brady's going to come out of retirement. I think he needs uh, approval. If he wants to be the owner, part owner of the Raiders and come out of retirement, he needs the approval of everybody, all the other owners. I think that's correct. I don't know what you think the chances of Brady playing are, uh, but it's really the, the quarterback situation behind Garoppolo is pretty dire. I mean, you do have Hoyer who is experienced, but you know, he could probably get a uh, wide receiver one season out of Devante, but not a sure thing. Like if it were Garoppolo or an Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or somebody like that. So uh, I'm just worried about the offense as a whole now. And I think the Raiders uh, are a little bit suspect now uh, until we know more about Garoppolo's foot, because we just don't know who's going to be playing quarterback for him. It's, It's such a driving force on offense. How far did you recently move down Josh Jacobs? Because he has been not only mine, but a lot of people's favorite selection in the third round, because so far in drafts, that's allowed you to start two strong wide receivers and then go Jacobs as your anchor RB in the third. I think third round's still really good value. I have him, I moved him from two to six, which is pretty significant in my rankings, but I was very high on him to start the offseason. Uh, so I still think he's going to see a huge workload I just am now worried about the touchdown opportunities and you know drive sustaining opportunities because if you have a questionable quarterback then you know you're gonna have fewer fewer touches uh, for your from your running back another player going in that third round range is Brees Hall and Robert Sala recently came out and said he's very optimistic Brees Hall will play in week one there are a few different Jets reporters also suggesting that Hall won't be ready for OTA so it seems like September is the timeline here. On that same note, though, in going in the third round, Brees Hall is currently being drafted as the RB11 overall, right ahead of Travis Etienne as a top 30 pick. So does this move the needle for you at all in drafting Hall in that range? Well, I think the it was interesting. I saw the tweet that said that he had hit 22 miles per hour in the GPS tracking. And it's not often we get, because with this, you know, you, you, call, you call it the uh, ready for week one or on track for week one uh, season, season uh, in yep. spring. Yeah. So it's not often, though, that we actually get data that actually backs up what they're saying. Now, is somebody just saying that he's hit 22 miles per hour or is this act- this is something that should be easily checkable, but maybe not. Um, that's it's nice to have that data to say, OK, he is running really fast. That must mean he's feeling pretty good. Probably not cutting on the knee at, at all yet. But the way that Javante Williams has come back and is in OTAs, albeit with a knee brace and everything, it just seems like Brees Hall should be ready to go week one. And if he's really running that fast, I feel pretty confident about him being ready to go at the start of the season. Now, I mean, he may not be 100%, may not see his full complement of touches uh, first couple of weeks, first, first few weeks of September. Uh, but, you know, by, by midseason, he should be a full go. I'm still slightly skeptical of the injury, given that ADP. I don't mind being behind the field if I'm assuming he won't be healthy, but 
if he's healthy, obviously it's the ideal situation. He was plopped into last year, um, had a higher a dot than most running backs as he led all running backs with 21 air yards per game. And then also remember his share of the team's backfield touches only increased, got higher and the last five games prior to suffering October's torn ACL. So the workload, at least we know, will be right if, in fact, he's healthy, but that's still a major if. Another tight end, one we were trying to jam up there alongside the other elite options, is Darren Waller. And Giants OC Mike Kafka came out at OTAs and said that basically they're trying to use Waller around every inch of the field now that they've seen him as a player. Quote, he makes you defend really all the depth of the field and the width of the field. He can get over the second level and work second level defenders. He can get to the third level because he has tremendous athletic ability and speed. TJ Hernandez has a profile on Waller up on the site. And as he notes as well, Waller's 16% target share with Devontae Adams last year in the Raiders. We try to overlook that since 2019 to 2021, Waller had a 25% target share and was proven to be an elite tight end option. So do you have faith in a Waller bounce back in this Giants offense? Yeah, for me, it's a great situation for him to land in. Uh, the receiving room, receiver room is uh, not too impressive. There's as many targets available for him uh, as almost any tight end in the league in terms of target share if if he's healthy. And that's the big question. Is he going to be healthy? He had back-to-back uh, 16-game -back seasons in 2019-2020. It's when he went over 1,100 yards both seasons. And then in 2021, only played 11 games. And then last year, 2022, he played nine games and had a disappointing season with Devontae. But there's nobody like Devontae in that Giants receiving core. So I think he has a great chance of being the number one target in that offense passing attack. And uh, in that case, he's a, a value, but you you have to take into account his uh, injury history and whether or not you trust him uh, to be out there for 15, 16 games, because that's what we're hoping for from your tight end is that they are out there for, for most of the season. He's uh, just turned 30. He's turning 31 in September. So that's the only red flag I see for Waller heading into the season is that injury history. And not that we're chasing floor options at his ADP, although his ADP compared to Kyle Pitts, T.G. Hawkinson, others who haven't shown us ceiling, um, is definitely an easy pill to swallow. At the same time, though, remember, the way they used Waller, the Raiders last year, was so odd just in allowing him to lead his position and depth the target, 14.5-yard depth of target from a quarterback, Derek Carr, who has historically been a terrible deep passer. So, of course, it's no wonder why his production failed altogether last year. So if we're now bringing him closer to the line of scrimmage and focusing the offense around him on every level of the field, I do think Waller, if he stays healthy, can easily lead the Giants in targets, which is why I'm so high on him this year. And finally, Jennifer Eakins has a piece on the site right now explaining why Antonio Gibson is her favorite zero RB target if you fall into that strategy. And Ron Rivera recently came out and said that Gibson, quote, has really shown his pass catching abilities, unquote, in OTAs. Now, why it took until the fourth year of OTAs having Gibson, I'll never understand Paulson, to see that Gibson, who of course was a wide receiver at Memphis, suddenly has pass catching chops. But at the same time, remember, whenever they lost J.D. McKissick over the second half of the season, Gibson averaged fewer targets per game. They instead just handed Brian Robinson over 18 touches per game to be an every down back. Robinson, of course, who is egregiously, offensively for fantasy football being drafted behind James Cook. And I'm still upset about it. But anyways, your thoughts on the Washington backfield under Eric Bieniemy this year, Paulson. 
Are you saying that Robinson's being drafted too high? I am saying that he needs or to be low. significantly higher. Yes. Okay. The fact that you could have little single digit touch James Cook over Brian Robinson literally yeah. offends me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to highlight uh, a tweet by a friend of the show, Ian Hartitz, uh, who tweeted today. Tweets? And could, no way. Yeah. Uh, Antonio Gibson, NFL career, 2020, Ron Rivera says he has a skill set similar to Christian McCaffrey. 2021, Kyle Allen says uh, Gibson will have a similar role as CMC. 2022, starting kicker turner. And 2023, Rivera is impressed by Gibson, the former collegiate receiver in the passing game. So we've come full circle uh, in terms of the coach speak. Uh, you know, all joking aside, we, we, I mean, I've always been a fan of Gibson and his his game, but the fact that they brought in Brian Robinson and gave him the, the RB1 uh, role uh, last year uh, makes you a little bit nervous about him, but I do I, I do prefer Gibson and PPR formats to, to Robinson due to that. I think he is a talented guy. I think the, the issue seems to be maybe ball security, maybe some goal line uh, ability between Gibson and Robinson. Uh, but so you, you think that uh, Robinson is the clear RB1 in Washington, or how do you think this breakdown? Not that it would not that it would affect me drafting Gibson at his current ADP, because basically you're getting him as an RB4 or 5, depending on your build. But absolutely, Robinson. That's who they entrusted last year after he was shot in the leg and missed the first month of the season, basically. Yeah. Um, just to hand him that workload. Oh, yeah. I think Robinson, not not to say again that he'll lead the backfield in touches, but after Gibson handled a career low in touches last year in a season they didn't have J.D. McKissick for half the year, yeah, I definitely think Brian Robinson is the first option. But then maybe Gibson does play himself into a third down role. Yeah, and I, you know, he he's good enough to, to produce in six to eight carries and four or five catches. So if they actually do give him the J.D. McKissick-type role, then he could outscore Robinson, who's not, he's kind of a, Robinson's kind of a zero in the passing game, uh, but he is more likely to, to surpass 200 carries. I definitely agree with that. And he's the type of player I like to tack on in those later rounds in May and June. I'll probably have a different stance since we have to take harder leans for redraft those home leagues come August, uh, since we'll have the most information. But right now, we're just talking about profiles and the art type of players we chase of course i'll draft gibson yeah i don't hate it at all but brian robinson should still be ranked higher uh not by you but everyone is egregiously pushing them down the board most importantly though paulson you also have two pieces on the site for everyone that's why we're here today to discuss both an offensive line article discussing the money that teams invested in their trenches this offseason, and also one on defense. So I will let you take it away, and I'll just chip in wherever you'd like me to. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the units that maybe I'm going to discuss. But I, I started doing this five years or so ago, and I don't think – I haven't seen anybody else do this type of analysis, and I think it's an interesting way to look at a hard-to-quantify uh, aspect of fantasy football. We know that offensive lines really do help their – uh, running backs and their quarterbacks and receivers and the offense as a whole. Uh, we know that bad offensive lines can submarine and otherwise good running back or, you know, appealing fantasy season. Uh, if there's an injury or two across the offensive line or they just don't play well, or they lost some talent in free agency. And this basically assumes that the free agent market is pretty efficient 
and that a player, whatever he gets in free agency, uh, equates to his talent and his impact on the offensive line. So I look at the net money in uh, and the net money out, and I also add in the, the draft picks, high capital draft picks that the, the team used in the first three rounds on the offensive line uh, to try to see which teams might be able to uh, offset some of their losses uh, in free agency. But what I found was uh, Denver, uh, five years that I've been tracking this data, no team has spent more in the offseason than the Denver Broncos uh, did this year. The net $23.6 million was slightly more than the net uh, 23.1 that the Bills spent in 2019. Uh, the Bills offensive line improved. Their, I look at adjusted line yards, adjusted sack rate over at Football Outsiders to try to measure uh, a team's improvement or you know getting worse at on the offensive line. They got Mike McGlinchey, Ben Powers. Uh, they got a good rush. Uh, McGlinchey's better in rush in rush blo- rush blocking, and Powers is better in pass blocking. So. Both, both, both aspects of the offensive line should be better, and that bodes well for Russell Wilson and and Javante Williams. Um, another team that I think continues to invest, uh, the Bengals. Last year, uh, they spent twenty point six million. They spent another net of seventeen point one million, uh, adding uh, Orlando Brown. Uh, they did have a big drop in their adjusted sack rate last year, so they were protecting. Uh, Joe Burrow better. It didn't really pay off a whole lot in the running game, but uh, the uh, since the offensive line continues to improve, and we were just talking about the Commanders, uh, they shored up their offensive line by spending 11.4 million. Andrew Wiley tackle guard uh, Nick, Nick Gates, and they added a third round center. So this offensive line should look a little different. They were kind of bottom ten. Uh, last year uh, in in the in the metrics that I look at, so those were the three that invested in a major way. And the other ones that were the other one that was interesting to me was the Steelers, who really could have. Um, I mean, they were already tenth in uh, adjusted line yards, twelfth in adjusted sack rate last year, and then they added the third. Uh, or last year they spent the third most. This year they spent the fourth most, ten point seven million. Uh, adding guard uh, Isaac Silmalo and uh, Nate Herberg. Uh, And then they added, of course, Broderick Jones, which probably is the biggest addition for them. So, you know, Najee Harris is kind of going later maybe than he should. I don't know, like, talent-wise, is he up there with the top eight or nine backs in the fantasy ranks? I don't know. But certainly I think he's going to have a big workload, and this offensive line is going to be – should be terrific. And if we're following touches and uh, with a good offensive line, then Najee Harris uh, should should be a surprisingly good uh, fantasy asset this year. Steelers also adding massive tight end Darnell Washington, one of the nation's best blocking tight ends at 6'7", 265 pounds as well. So I agree with you. Definitely an offense I keep buying low into, not to mention everyone basically due for regression from the horrific results they had through the air, but even just look at someone as simple as Deontay Johnson. Like 833 wide receivers have recorded 110 targets in the Super Bowl era, and Deontay Johnson was literally the only one of them to not record a touchdown last year. That tells you alone that, of course, we think they're coming. Um, Pat Fryermuth also was one of 15 tight ends last year with 69 targets, at least 69. And his two touchdowns were the fewest among those 15. So it's all starting to boil over. 
especially when you mentioned the improvements of the offensive line, that this is a team, Kenny Pickett included, to buy it low into and to stack for this year. Also yeah. on your point. Oh, I was just going to add, I don't know, didn't know if you wanted to move on to defense, but I wanted to mention uh, two of the teams that lost a lot of salary, uh, lost a lot of talent in free agency. The Eagles uh, had the biggest net loss, 17.7 along the offensive line. But, uh, you know, they lost uh, Andre Dillard, Isaac Sayomalo, uh, both good good players. Um, but they, but Dillard only played in seven games, so it wasn't a huge impact. He wasn't a huge impact on the offense last season. They drafted uh, Tyler Steen in the third round. Um, so, and they do have, I went and looked at their depth. And they do have some pretty good depth there ready to step in. So I think the, the Eagles will be able to weather the, the free agency storm better than most teams. The other one, that jumped out was the 49ers who just get killed in free agency again this year. They lost 15.6 million last year and they lost another 16.9 million this year. Uh, Mike McGlinchey, as I mentioned earlier, moved on. Daniel Brunskill moved on. Uh, might uh, start to bite them, um, but uh, they did sign uh, John Feliciano, Matt Pryor, but these guys were not highly regarded uh, free agents uh, in terms of salary. So, uh, they they need to continue to coach well and hope that their younger players can can step up for them to maintain their top ten ranking in both adjusted line yards and adjusted sack rate. It was so weird because they had an NFL high, the 49ers, seven compensatory picks. And even then, they basically leaned on their recency bias, the luck they had in falling into Jake Brindle, who was an amazing replacement for Alex Mack last year. But they basically told themselves, we can do that again. We can just replace anyone on the offensive line. So to have that many picks and then literally not draft Mike McGlinchey's replacement, instead pinning everything, most likely on Matt Pryor or most likely Colton McKivitz, uh, it was an odd, odd thing to do especially because remember they traded up for a freaking kicker so um i don't quite understand it kyle shanahan to his defense has historically been very good at masking offensive linemen and quarterbacks in his scheme so maybe it doesn't matter in the end anyways uh, i also just wanted to hit on russell wilson you mentioned of course sean payton showing up and prioritizing immediately the offensive line also adding arguably the best blocking tight end and Chris Manhurts in free agency too. So it's clear what Peyton's trying to do, but more importantly, Russell Wilson career lows last year in completion percentage, touchdown rate, and fantasy points per game. You would think we at least have one more year of something similar to prime Wilson under Peyton. It's a very small sample, but I just genuinely can't get over, even though everyone tuned out by this time, I can't get over the fact that Nathaniel Hackett was fired and then Russell Wilson finishes the QB2 and QB3 in week 17 and 18. I can't ignore it, even the small sample. So it sucks me back in and I keep drafting Wilson anyways. Yeah, Wilson is an interesting dude because he's so, you know, he's being drafted so late. Uh, you know, he's going QB18. Like, just get your head around that. This is a perennial top 12, you know, top 10, top 12 guy. You know, even in his down years, he was a QB1. And a lot of the things are lining up really well for him. You know, Sean Payton and fixing the coaching issue. We know he's good. Offensive line is going to be better. He's got some good receivers. They got a good pass catching tight end. You know, this is shaping up to be a bounce back year for him, and you can get him really late. Uh, he's going pick one twenty nine right now. What were your, some of your takeaways from your defensive spending piece? 
Yeah, so it's very similar uh, process that I use. Uh, go to Spot Track, the great site that uh, has all the free agency signings, and uh, I use my pivot table, pivot table magic, to uh, get these net in, net out. Instead of instead of you know offensive line where it's just offensive linemen, this is the whole defense. So this is really we're looking at fantasy defense, uh, and I, I found that uh, teams that have invested. Uh, at least seven million on defense in a given year have enjoyed an average increase in fantasy scoring of twenty percent the following year. It's not universal. It's not going to happen every time. But in general, if a team is over seven million in spending, net spending, they they improve their 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 scoring by twenty percent on average. So this year, the top one was Atlanta, forty one point seven million. So they may be able to take a a jump, but they were pretty bad last year uh you know certainly not a team i'm looking at to rank in the top 12 or anything as, as far as a, a team you'd want to draft but they might be in the streaming conversation if things come together with this talent that they added chicago was second with 26.7 million net in again not a great team uh fantasy team last year i think they might have been dead last in our in our fantasy scoring at four for four let me double check that. I'd love to point out when the Bears were last in something. Yes, they were dead last in scoring 4.6 fantasy points. They could, you know, improve greatly off of that, uh, but it's still not going to make them necessarily a, you know, every week starter. But the teams that are interesting to me that showed up in the top four are Cleveland, uh, a net of 26 million in, uh, and Seattle, uh, a net of 25.1 million in. Both of those teams, uh, finished inside the top 11 in fantasy scoring last year. The Browns were eighth. Uh, they already had a good unit. Before. So what I like to see is a, a team in that, you know, five to 15 range that's spending a lot of money on the defensive side of the ball. Maybe they make that leap into the top five or top eight um, in terms of defensive fantasy scoring. Cause now we're going over to FFPC or wherever we can draft defenses and we can get these guys really, uh, quite a bit later than what, where they really should be going based on the talent level. Uh, they had a uh, tackle, defensive tackle, Dalvin Tomlinson, Juan Thornhill, and I'm not even going to try this defensive end, uh, Oko or Rowan Quo. I guess I did try it. 6.3 million for him. They did. Uh, they didn't use a pick in the draft in the first three rounds on a defensive player, so that's the one maybe mark against them. But I think the Browns should be improved from the eighth place finish they finished last year. So I think you know take that into account when you're when you're seeing them as. I don't know where they're even going in their ADP. I don't think they're very high. And then the Seahawks, eleventh uh, number eleven fantasy scoring. I think that surprises people when I mention that. Like I was looking at the Seahawks, figuring they were fifteenth to twenty range last year, but they were actually number eleven. They got Devin Witherspoon in the first round, uh, outside linebacker Derek Hall. But they, uh, you know, they added twenty five million in salary, and the big one was Draymond Jones, seventeen point two million. They also added Julian Love. Uh, they got Bobby Wagner. And Jaron Reed from the Packers, so this unit should be uh, improved as well. So those are a couple of the lower, maybe echelon, fantasy defenses that I'm going to start looking at drafting. And the other couple of interesting ones are the Lions and the Panthers. They were more middle of the road, uh, the 18th and 15th in scoring, respectively. But they both uh, showed up there at uh, six and number six in uh, spending with Detroit, and number seven in spending defensive spending with Carolina. But I think I'd probably have a little bit more confidence in Detroit because I do like to draft fantasy defenses on teams with good offenses because I think the good offenses tend to put the defense in good positions to to get sacks, to get uh, return touchdowns, et cetera. So I would kind of lean Detroit there. 
Uh, they've been a bad fantasy defense for a long time, but they're one that could could make a significant leap as well heading into 2023. Going back to your assessment of the Falcons, I also think that's why our own Sharp Clark in the betting discord at 44 for everyone has mentioned the Falcons as a divisional winner at long odds because not only for David Onyemata and Caden Ellis, off-ball linebacker, to follow Ryan Nielsen from New Orleans to Atlanta, so they're familiar with their scheme, but also for that defense to quietly add Calais Campbell, who I understand only five and a half sacks last year, but when healthy has been a proven commodity, and also, despite five and a half sacks, Atlanta only totaled 21 and a half last season, so that certainly helps. And quietly adding Jesse Bates, arguably the league's best run defensive safety, to this mix, yeah, their defense in a the weakest division of football is very improved. So I know people like to highlight the Saints in their additions, but I think the Falcons and Panthers are significantly better teams than the Saints this season. And, of course, the Bucks are just in the Caleb Williams competition and lottery at the end of the year. So do like those in the mix. And then another one uh, you didn't mention, I know I've mentioned this on the past as shows as well, but I keep, like the Steelers, going back to the Rams offense. Just the fact that that team is arguably a nothing on defense. 71% of their defensive players are rookies at this time. Also, last year's unit was the first under Sean McFay to average less than 62 plays per game and a lower rate than 60% pass play rate from neutral game script. So we're going to get, we assume anyways, more volume, both in plays and passing through the air. And it's something I want to be a part of, whether it's Cooper Cup being undervalued, given that he averaged a position high, 33% target share, and over 20 fantasy points per game in his eight full starts with Matthew Stafford, whether it's Matthew Stafford just regressing last year, but now we're getting double discounted this season. You mentioned that you're really high on Tyler Higby, so that's another offense I keep coming back to and just want pieces of as everyone is down on them. Yeah, if you look at the Rams, they finished 27th. They're very disappointing finish uh, fantasy-wise for that defense. I mean, they've been kind of overrated the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. not only did they finish 27th in fantasy scoring, they lost a net of seven defensive players in free agency last year. So they just got decimated in free agency. They did draft a couple of players uh, in the first three rounds to try to shore up their defense, but it's pretty ugly. They're, they were the third. They lost the third most salary, 22.4 million. Uh, New Orleans lost the second most salary, 29.7 million. That's another defense that has traditionally been pretty good, the Saints, and fantasy-wise is is tanking. And then, again, the, the Eagles got killed, 31.1 million, but they drafted uh, three players in the draft in the first three rounds. Um, Jalen Carter in the first round to replace uh, – Javon Hargrave, uh, they drafted safety Sidney Brown in the third round to help replace uh, Gardner Johnson and uh, Marcus Epps. And they also added Nolan Smith, linebacker, in the second round. So when when play, when teams do that, and I see them at the bottom, you know, in terms of how much salary, or the top of how much salary they lost, but they reload in the draft, I feel a little more confident that they're going to be able to sort of maintain uh, their, their uh, fantasy scoring or at least stay close to it uh maybe improve upon it but maybe not too big of a hit when when they are uh, filling the needs that they lose in free agency and and the eagles got killed in both offensive line and uh defensive uh, free agency spending this year and that doesn't mean in my opinion that 
Jalen Hurts and the Eagles offense will falter. That just tells me they may struggle a bit more, which keeps their opponents in games. Thus, we're going yeah. to get much more volume from them. And that's what we want for fantasy. As Brother Roz even mentions in the chat, how much production increase compares with schedule. This is something that the great Warren Sharp of Sharp Football has done close analysis of. And for example, I understand it's only one year, but last season, the top seven teams that were projected with the league's easiest schedules based on Vegas season win totals. So based on what Vegas is aligning their season win totals at before the year, six of those seven teams made the playoffs. Uh, maybe it was for an easier schedule. Maybe it's because their offense was good. But either way, I like to look at those extremes. And that's what we're trying to do right now just to get ahead of what happened from last year since the reason we'll always have a job, Paulson, is because everyone drafts last year's stats. That's not our job. So we're in good shape, brother. And you can check out, for instance, for Dallas's offense. Um, I'm a little more down on it than a lot of people, understanding they are more top-heavy this year on paper. But I write about that and more schedule analysis in my best ball tiers on the site. What else do you have for everyone before you go on vacation and leave me? <laughs> I uh, – I I have the defense article. I have the offensive line article. I'm going to, during my vacation, I'm going to be staying on top of the rankings. I think we might be putting in a, a red alert system. If something happens where there's a, you know, a, a call chain that a calling tree that gets to me so that I know instantly when DeAndre Hopkins is signed and I can run to my phone or run to my computer and, and update the the rankings for that over the next couple of weeks. But uh, not a whole lot happens in June. And that's one of the reasons I, take my vacation during this time and I'll be ready uh, when we get back uh, mid-June really for the start. Uh, for me, once July 4th hits, we're really getting into the heavy uh, fantasy season, but certainly uh, with best ball and everything else going on, Scott Fishbowl, that uh, things are starting to pick up uh, in late June. So I'll be back for that. More articles free as well for everyone on the site and the shows and content you don't get on the podcast feed are also on the 4 for 4 YouTube page. So stay tuned. I will be back next week with a guest in your place, Paulson, live at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, every Wednesday, in fact. So until then, you know, be a little bit kinder than what's required. We'll see you next time.